Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is... The remarkable writer and creator of Boston Metaphysical Society, Ms. Madeline Holly Rosing. Welcome to the show. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for having me back on the show. I really appreciate it. You know, this is, what, your uh, your fourth time fifth? with us? Fifth fourth, fourth or fifth, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, I think so. Writing. <laughs> she keeps writing and promoting her crowdfunding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, pretty much. Yeah, every time I... Uh, uh, got a new Kickstarter or, or something fun going on? I, I give you guys a, a holler. Yeah, it's it's um, it's almost a, a tradition these days. So, what have you got going? What's what's your latest? Uh, what's your latest? For, well, first of all, uh, uh, no, I guess I guess tell us what your latest Kickstarter is. Is and then we'll, we'll get into background. Uh, for those in the audience who are not familiar with Boston Metaphysical Society, it is a graphic novel and prose series about an ex-Pinkerton detective, a spirit photographer, and a genius scientist who battles supernatural forces in late 1800s Boston. We originally started with a six-issue graphic novel miniseries with art by Emily Hugh, and that was picked up by SourcePoint Press about a year and a half ago. And But since then, we have, uh, since the original miniseries, we have produced three sequels, The Scourge of the Mechanical Men, The Spirit of Rebellion, and Ghosts and Demons. Gwen Tavares is my new artist. And our latest sequel is called The Book of Demons, and it is on Kickstarter all through April. And it kind of finishes out this little mini-arc. Uh, it never, I never really planned it on being a mini-arc, but it ended up being a mini-arc, so that, that all works. Uh, but it is... Uh, once again, kind of focused on Caitlin, where she is kidnapped uh, by a great house and forced to find and enslave a demon. Wow. Uh, yeah, for those who've read Ghosts and Demons, that was sort of like part one of, of this little mini arc. And uh, we discovered that Caitlin had a, a connection to a demon through a, a, a ghost friend of hers. And her mother began to realize that her daughter had some sort of power over it. And her mother is just so obsessed with her daughter having this power and basically not having the right to this kind of, of ability 
uh, tells one of the great houses, and they are the, the the dominant economic and political entity in Boston metaphysical universe. And so things start going sideways for the team. So this is that story. So the great houses. Um, let's see in 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 this alternate history uh, yes. of uh, Boston. Well, I, uh, it's said in and, and uh, it's 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 the great states. I've. In the alternate history, this is the great states of America. It's not the United States of America anymore. And it's essentially a parliament, the government is essentially a parliamentary oligarchy where there are, the great houses are families, industrial families who control both the politics and the economy of uh, the great states of America. And they're the only ones who have the right to vote. That sounds, um, you you set this thing up years ago, and it sounds yes. uh, unfortunately extremely prescient at this point. Yeah, in the- yeah. It's I I I have to quote Harry Turtledove on this because for uh, mm. the duration of of a, a certain person's presidency, um, the pinned tweet on on his Twitter feed was uh, I didn't mean to be topical. I didn't mean to be topical. I didn't mean to be topical. <laughs> uh, God bless. The problem is that these these issues just cycle around and sooner or later it's going to sadly it's going to come up again yes and here we are voting yes. rights and that's one of the things that uh that's one of the hallmarks of um science fiction or predictive fiction as as it was called yes. uh in is that uh we look at given the current situation and, and set of circumstances that we find ourselves in at the moment what could happen next what's you know, yeah. it's, ask mean, the next yeah, question, yeah. and you you often end up with an answer you hoped would not be true. Correct, correct. And when you start writing alternate history, of course, you become a student of history. So you start looking at patterns and cycles, and kind of predict or or guess, as the case may be, if a, a certain thing didn't happen. Um, and in my universe. Our history started to change after the War of 1812, which we actually lost but to the Brits, but most American history books won't say that. They say that we won and we actually didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think we also started it, too, uh, which annoyed the Brits. No, actually, the Brits kind of started it, and then we got annoyed, and it, and it got um, – yeah, they started uh, indenturing American sailors. They would come up on uh, – uh, American sailing ships and and grab the sailors and indenture them and our our government took exception to that but uh, <laughs> but yes we did end up pretty much losing that but in my my alternate universe uh, what happened after that it kind of freaked out the powers that be so they decided to start eliminating uh, civil rights they wanted to shore up centralization and uh, the the feeling at the time was that. Uh, by taking control of a larger portion of the politics and the voting rights is that it would it would strengthen our nation and make us stronger. So uh, we're here in it's about 30, 40 years past uh, what I call the House Wars, the American Civil War. Uh, the original graphic novel starts in 1895 and uh, even though I've written prequel novels that start a little earlier than that and I'm also working on a, a a novel trilogy that deals with with the house wars. Oh boy! So that's it's, 
So yeah, so that that's later. With the same characters in the same universe? Not the same characters, because they basically wouldn't be born yet. Oh, yeah, this oh is, okay, this right. Is, this is world building of the first water, is what it is. Is a whole backstory to all of this wonderfulness. Yeah, but what, what, but the but the fun part is is that there are there are if you've read the some of the novellas that are in uh, in my anthology a prelude, you do get to meet some of the folks, but you meet them when they're a little younger or a lot younger. Uh, like Beatrice Wellsmore was in um, Steampunk Rat, my novella Steampunk Rat. So you get to meet her there, but she is a major character in um uh the house wars trilogy so uh and i had a lot of fun with her because i is like okay why you never see really a pairing up of a, a young woman and a middle-aged woman who start off hating each other and <laughs> and gradually realize they have more in common than they think and have to you know eventually the long arc is they have to eventually work together as a team to to defeat a big bad. Unless it's a, a mother big... and daughter. No, they're not mother and daughter. Well, that's it. That's, that's what yeah. you're saying here. Yeah. Yeah. And one is, uh, the, the younger woman is highly, is a highly skilled uh, airship pilot and airship designer. So she would be called, you know, kind of upper middle class sort of kind of, but Beatrice Wellsmore is head of a great house. She's head of house Wellsmore and is a very formidable woman who has a secret. So uh, it's it was a lot of fun writing the first novel in the trilogy is done. Um, I hope to get the next two done over the next year, and hopefully run a, a Kickstarter for the whole. I just figured, oh, let me just finish the whole story, get the whole set done, run a Kickstarter for it, make it all beautiful, you know, have a box set, all that fun stuff. Wow, that sounds that's really ambitious. <laughs> that's really how many how many pages a week do you write? If I may ask. Well, well, right now since I'm in Kickstarter mode, I'm pretty much not writing at all because I just don't have time. Because oh, I don't know if you've seen on social media, but I'm also producing a Boston metaphysical audio drama. Ooh, uh-huh. yeah, called the Ghost Ship, and I was very fortunate uh, to get. Eddie Louise and Chip Michael, who are the writing producing team uh, behind Sage and Savant, uh, mm-hmm. they're my production team. She's my script editor. He is my composer and um, sound engineer. We just went through the first round of casting for the leads and the narrator, and so we have callbacks. So that will probably happen in a couple weeks, and then I'll have a second round casting call for uh, supporting characters. And uh, we won't start recording till after. The Kickstarter's over for the graphic novel, but then this, then this whole thing will go to Kickstarter in, in the fall. Wow! So, yes, there's a lot wow. going on. <laughs> yeah, it sure sounds like it. I'm... I don't know whether to say the Kickstarter work is getting in the way of your writing, or writing is getting in the way of your Kickstarter work. <laughs> well, it it, it it's, it's hard to create both. do creative and marketing work at the same time when you when you're one person. It's extremely difficult. Um, and I just have to say, you know, like for the next month or so, I'm, I'm really not going to be writing other than uh, editing on the audio drama and doing final passes on the graphic novel as the finished art comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then May, I'll start writing again. When, when I'm on a normal schedule, I try to allot uh, an hour or two in the morning for administrative and marketing tasks. And then the afternoon is, is when I write. 
you have to be so organized to do that. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, it goes without saying. It's obvious to you, but uh, you know, to most of the rest of us, uh, that requires a level of organization that that uh, uh, seems almost superhuman. Well, that's that's what makes a professional writer, dear. You have to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I wish I was more organized than I was, but I, I learned a while ago that there's some things I just have to let them go and not worry about it. I won't tell you what things, but... <laughs> None of our business, surely. But, yeah, there's just some things you just, like, you can't worry about anymore. And, uh, uh, and, and not, you know, not, not beat yourself up over it, so... Yeah, well, that's good I, advice for anybody, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, it is. And, you know, there was other things I wanted to do this past year, and then, you know, obviously the pandemic hit. Um, so those had to put, you know, off to the side on the back burner. It's very difficult but, to, you know, do do the rounds at the conventions when there aren't any. Yes, yes. That's, and, that's got to put a crimp in your sails. Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, it, yeah, it's not no, a real it's, convention it's, until I've seen Madeline. <laughs> Then it's a real time. Uh, but I'm I'm signed up for uh, Fan Expo Boston in August. Great. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be there. Uh, there's no reason why, unless they change it, why I shouldn't. I was fortunate. We had a, a local vaccination clinic where mm-hmm. I went and, and just hung out and waited to see if they had any extra doses at the end of the day, and they did. So I got my first shot last week. Yay. Wow. Yeah. Um, and my husband's fully vaccinated now. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, Susan's gotten uh, gotten her first uh, vaccination, and I'm still waiting my turn. Yeah, but you can you can do that too if you want to. If you want to go hang out at some local, uh, particularly it's Pfizer, because once they open that bottle up, they got to use it within six hours. Yeah, so I have some thoughts have on that subject that don't need to be on the radio. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so um, we're working on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you have been working on the Boston metaphysical universe for a lot of years now. When did you when did you start it up, and uh, how? What was the genesis of Boston metaphysical? For, uh, you've covered this before on, on previous I know, interviews. Yeah. No, it's fine. You know, um, but uh, it for was our new originally a TV pilot that I wrote while I was at UCLA, UCLA Film School, and. Uh, it, it did well in a couple of competitions, and people liked it, but, you know, this was a long time ago, <laughs> now that I think about it. Uh, steampunk really hadn't hit the mainstream, so it was suggested that I adapt it into a graphic novel to use it as marketing material to take it back to either, you know, TV or film, mm-hmm. because people much would, would rather, re, you know, look at pretty pictures than actually read a script, <laughs> and I don't blame them. It's much more fun. Graphic novels get adapted as motion pictures all the time, all and it's, the time. it's a really it's a really good uh, really good way of, of uh, translating the work because it's yeah. already nearly there. Well, it's a storyboard right right in your hands, you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so I said, okay, let me try that. So I went back to school and learned how to write a comic, uh, and eventually found Emily. And we started uh, producing the the series, and I guess about a couple years in, I realized that I really like writing comics, and I really like the independent <laughs> uh, the independent creator community. And so I guess you guys are stuck with me now. So I just <laughs> kept I just kept going because people responded well, and 
enjoyed the, the story and the characters. Uh, so I, I figured it was it was a win win. The uh, one of the things that struck me uh, while we were talking about this was that uh, you know when you started doing this, steampunk was a new thing, and now it's. The the furor I think over steampunk the the intense hyperactivity uh, surrounding that genre has started to level off and it's started to become part of the just part of the the science fiction fantasy landscape now. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not it's it's not a fad. It's not going away. Uh, but when it was new, it had that that spark of of something fresh and something no one had ever seen before. So how yeah, was that a hundred years ago when brass rails were, were the thing? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's what's nice about uh, steampunk now is it's evolved. So you're seeing a lot of uh, cross-cultural steampunk. Um, you're seeing stories set in Egypt and Africa and China and Japan, and it's really cool uh, to see a different culture's take and how they, they treat uh, steampunk or alternate history and it's it's I mean I think that's really the way it, it's going to go it, continue going is I think it will it will flourish in in the multicultural space yeah we've we've seen a lot of the weird west come up too it's not all uh, you know quasi Victorian England anymore it's uh, in this con this continent as well oh yeah yeah now there's uh, you see a number of uh, comics uh, in that space and uh and of course, there's a bunch of comics that that deal with Tesla and uh, have a you know steampunk themes within it, which are a whole lot of fun. So yeah, it's it's kind of what I would call normalized within you know a subgenre of of science fiction, where it's just yeah, it's just simply uh, a part of the norm now. And, and instead of like you said, it was a, it's not the shiny new penny anymore. It's just okay, how can how can this subgenre of science fiction evolve and become more interesting and stuff like that? And not fade away. You know, some people say, oh, steampunk's dead. No, it's just not the latest thing anymore. But yeah. where do we go next with it? That's a big question. And I think you're helping answer that with your work. Part of the part of what keeps your stuff fresh is the fact that it is so well grounded in history. You know, it's, it's, um, you can, no matter which way you move in your, in, in the world of Boston metaphysical, you get the sense that there is a great deal of substance off in the wings that we can't see that's, uh, you know, that makes the universe feel solid and continuous. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons I started writing the prose is because I it was a good way to, to flesh out the universe and to establish canon. Uh, I originally started writing the short stories and novellas when we were in production for the first six issues to do to do just that with the idea of like, okay, when I have enough stories, you know, maybe I'll actually put together an anthology and, you know, I can sell that. But it really helped me dig deeper into the universe. And that, of course, reflects back into the comic. Uh, I mean, it's not like I put Easter eggs, but both the comic and the prose, they... They're companion pieces to each other. They enrich each other. And even my, uh, the editor for my novel, uh, she did, uh, she edited A Storm of Secrets. And then she edited the, the first novel in the House Wars trilogy. And she was going like, oh my God, so this is how this started and that started. And 
Now uh-huh. I now I get to see where this began and why this particular thing is here now, which I, you know, it made perfect sense in Storm of Secrets, but this is why it got built or this is why it happened. And uh, so you get filled in on a lot of little things that just are what a friend of mine called it aha moments like aha so that's how that happened you know so it's it's a lot of fun to do but it does require uh, a lot of research and outlining um to make everything consistent there really is no shortcut to any of this is there nope no no because it's it's a really big complex world and i mean those are the kinds of science fiction stories that I, I prefer to read myself, so of course that's that's what I'm going to write. Um, there was the one by Arcady Martin. Uh, a, what is it? A, the Memory of Empire that won the Hugo. Mm-hmm. That was extraordinary, and the world building was off the hook. And talk about someone who I think her name was Martine Arcady. Arcady, I think it was. Um, Susan's going to look it up, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, she literally, you know, invented new languages or derivations on current languages to fit her future universe and, you know, naming um, conventions of, of the people. It was really, mm-hmm. I just loved it. It's not like, it's not a kind of book you can just skim through. You really got to read it. And But to me... I mean, it, it was very interesting, and um, I actually have to pick up the second book. I think that's out now. And this is why n- novels of any quality take years to write. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just uh, you can't just go. Oh, I'm going to write twenty thousand words this month, you know, <laughs> and have a book in six, you know, in six months. That's. I mean, you you'll get a decent book if you're a good writer, but it's not going to stand the test of time. You know, I'm, you despite know. what the fans want, they want a new one every month, and no excuses. Yeah. And life ain't like that. You, well, yeah. it is. It is for the if you're writing pulp. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, it was well, a memory you know, named Empire. To, was to the people uh, who can write that? I mean, uh, I've been just to keep my uh, my brain stable. Like sometimes I go read cozy mysteries, and some of those are really good. They're just so much fun and. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the 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 because there's always a murder plot. The yeah, just seed, seeding it so you don't guess who it is ahead of time. But when it is revealed, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I mean, that's an art in unto itself. You'd less, um, just love to go and live in the cozy mystery world, except for that death thing. <laughs> the death thing, yes. Someone's always getting murdered. You know, it's like living in Cabot Cove. <laughs> you know. Or next to the hell, hell mouth. It was like, didn't right. these people in Sunnyvale figure out that, you know, something what was, was going up. on in their town? Yeah, something was up. It shows yeah. what you can get used to if it's, you know, if you can't get away from it, you know? Yeah. A but, metaphor uh, for life. <laughs> ah, there's a dog. Yes. A dog. Little jingle Nemo. jingle. Nemo the Wonder Dogs. Yes, finding <laughs> little Captain Nemo in Slumberland sort of hits all the bases. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he just decided to walk up and make sure that his presence was known. Of and course, offer offer dog kisses. 
So. Oh yeah, no, I've been on Zoom meetings where it's it's pretty funny when the cat, you know, you have see a cat tail come mm-hmm. waving up in the middle of the camera. And right. It's it's pretty funny. And all the the highly educated professionals go kitty, <laughs> <laughs> and everything grinds to a halt. Yes. So, um, how did you get started writing in the first place? What was it that? that no, this is this goes way back. Way back. Way back. What was it that, where was that moment where you said, I want to be a writer. This is what I want to do with my life. Uh, well, I used, to, well, growing up when I was a kid, to amuse myself, I would tell myself stories. I would just make up stories in my head because I would be bored doing whatever I was supposed to be doing. And uh, I think that's probably where it started. And then as a, a, a teen, um, I, I did a little writing, and uh, but decided that I I hadn't really had a life yet. So to me, anything like a 15, 16 year old teenager would just be boring because it there would be no depth to it. There would because I hadn't lived a life. Mm-hmm. So I I stopped writing for actually quite a while, and then in my mid-20s, I started writing again and started taking some uh, screenwriting courses when I was living in New York and really enjoying those, and, you know, I had a full-time job, and I'd I'd write during my lunch break and on the weekends, and uh, so I did that for a long while, and there was a few shows that, uh, you know, I got a script into, and it got positive comments, and uh, so that was very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really wasn't until I got into UCLA film school that I was taught any kind of structure and methodology. And so with that under my belt, I was able to really, you know, function as a professional writer. And and that really, really made the difference. You and I have at least that much in common. We both went to UCLA film school. Yes. And then we, we both had an interest in writing, although my mind did not... Result in, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the illustrious path that you chose. Yet, well, yeah, I'm working on it. I, my 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 first book is, oh my god. <laughs> well, yeah, but everybody's first book is, oh my god. I mean, yeah, it's well, a it's, lot of work. Well, it's a hellacious experience because you know, if you're if it's your first time doing it, uh, uh, you have absolutely no idea how to structure your workflow or how to get yeah. from point A to point B because you've never done it before. Or worse and, yet, you think you do, yeah, and or, you really don't. Right, causing you to throw yeah. out tens of thousands of words if you're, you know. <laughs> well, you know what they say, murder your darlings. Murder your darlings, absolutely. Yeah, well, I have a, uh, the, the first novel I ever wrote, well, I'm sure never see the light of day. Uh, it was a, a middle grade novel, and I probably hit every stereotype and cliche known to humankind. Uh, but that's okay, because now I know what they are. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there is, you know, cores and, and seeds of that story that I may use for, you know, something else. I mean, it has nothing to do with Boston Metaphysical. It's completely mm-hmm. unrelated. Uh, but, you know, you learn from that. And then you, you just, you move on. Hopefully. <laughs> yes, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, my my book is set in a fantasy universe. Uh, it's uh, um, an urban fantasy. And, uh the the urban part is probably as challenging as the fantasy part. It's it's a horrifying discovery. Yeah, 
Yeah, but it's uh, also a very popular genre. So. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. You know, the idea that that something wonderful could be just around the corner is is uh, is very attractive. And that's that's at the core, actually, of the uh, the beginnings of Boston Metaphysical, the the young lady who... Uh, uh, Caitlin O'Sullivan. Nice segue, by the way. I'm, I'm impressed. Yes. That was good. Yes, Caitlin <laughs> O'Sullivan. Yes. My medium and spirit photographer. Yeah, yeah, that's that's S E G U E by the way, not S E G W A Y, which is a <laughs> an overpriced mall cop ride that takes uh, clueless CEOs over cliffs. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> we just derailed it again. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Getting back to Caitlin and uh, and her introduction to the the characters in the first chapter of Boston Metaphysical. Metaphysical, yes. Um, yeah, her father is, uh, not a big spoiler here. Her, her dad dies in the first three pages and she comes to Samuel Hunter to take his place, to take his job because they need the money. Uh, but she can't tell her mom that she's doing this because her mom never approved of her husband working for Samuel and doing, and being a spirit photographer. And she, was mortified to, you know, find out that her husband could talk to ghosts, you know, that he was a medium. And uh, so, yeah, Caitlin has always kept it hidden from her for, well, for a number of issues. Eventually that fails. But, uh, yeah, so she gets a job and uh, meets Granville T. Woods, who is my genius scientist part. And for those of you out there who don't know Granville Woods, he is a, a historical figure, an African-American scientist who was a contemporary of Bell and Edison and, and Tesla. Uh, the real Granville Woods, I don't think he ever met Tesla. Uh, he probably did meet Bell because he did sell some of his patents to to Westinghouse and, and, to, and to Bell. Um and he definitely did meet Edison at one point because he sued Edison for stealing some of his patents and actually won. Wow. Yeah, he actually won. And then my research has told me that Edison then offered him a job, but he refused and started his own business with his brother in upstate New York. But I, I brought him all to Boston because, you know, as a writer, I can do that. Of course. Yeah. You know, and... and uh in in the mix as well is Harry Houdini. Yes, yes. I brought in Harry because uh, in the original series there is a, a secret organization called Bath, which is short for Bell, Edison, Tesla, and Houdini, and they got together because they suspected there something bad was happening um, in the universe, and they needed the collective intelligence of all these guys together to figure out what was going on but harry brought in the the human aspect of it even though he wasn't uh technically a scientist he was also very smart but he understood people and he understood how to work with people and during the original six issue miniseries it's houdini who uh wants to bring samuel and his team in on this endeavor because he thinks they they one they have something to offer but they have a different point of view and you discover later that there's definitely linkage between Samuel and what is happening and how the team helps him. And, uh, 
lots of every everyone between Tesla and Houdini, they all have their own and Bell, they all have their own agendas. Mm, and um, well, and not necessarily, you know, the same. And of course, Houdini's, uh, you know, he's got this inherent skepticism because he is he's an illusionist. Yeah, but in in the real Harry Houdini, yes, he was an absolute skeptic. In my world, he is not. Oh, Fair okay, enough. interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. skeptic to some point. I mean, he promised, you know, before he died that if people would keep having seances at a certain time of year, he, you know, if it was even possible that he could go visit them, he would. And so far, he hasn't turned up. Yeah. So, But he had enough belief to at least make that promise. <laughs> so, I don't know. He wanted to believe anyway. Yeah. And I, I know some people have gotten kind of mad at me because they think I depicted Tesla as the bad guy. And... It's like, okay, he's not necessarily a bad guy. He's just obsessive and complex. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to put him on a pedestal. Good on he you. Was, he was brilliant. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But uh, Tesla had his issues. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, and, yeah. His famous earthquake machine, which was not an earthquake machine at all. It was actually a, uh, a kind of bladeless air impeller. He'd invented a new kind of air pump that depended on the friction of the air against a whirling blade. And it ran at very high speed, and the vibration is what shook the building. Oh, details. Yeah, (laughs) but it was famously called the earthquake machine. (laughs) I I remember hearing about that. Didn't he scare a lot of people with that? Oh, yeah. He terrified people because they'd never seen a whole building shake like that before. Yeah. No, I also remember reading that when he passed away, that the U.S. government went in and took all his papers in his apartment. They took everything, and his family from Croatia uh, fought long and hard to get get them back. And I think eventually they did. But yeah, I can, but I can understand why the U.S. government would be all over his stuff. He he invented a, a great many things that uh, yeah. you know turn up in in modern. Uh, our, our modern world. Like, I've got a cell phone charger that it's, it's just a pad, and it uses yeah. technology Tesla invented to charge my phone. People yeah. want to buy a Tesla you know, induction, car, but I don't think that's the same thing. Induction chargers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the induction charger for your phone is something Tesla invented. Well, Edison Radiant. is getting recognized, too. In fact, <laughs> current news is uh, the Thomas Edison... St. Louis tinfoil recording of 1878 has just been inducted into the National Recording Registry. Wow. It's very possibly okay. the first human voice ever recorded, and it was his. No, that, that makes sense. He was a, he was a brilliant businessman, and I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that if Tesla had had a modern-day business manager, our lives would be very different. Mm. Oh, yeah. yes. He was yeah. a great inventor, but a terrible businessman. Terrible. Just terrible. And, and Edison was just brilliant. He understood how things could be monetized. So uh, when is your Kickstarter actually starting? Is it running now? or No. Uh, we are launching March 30th. Okay. So, so that's so just... all of April. Uh huh. In so, the year 2021, in case you're hearing this on rerun. Yes, in the, in the year far, 2021. Far yes. <laughs> yeah. So that is just a week away uh, as Correct. we record this, uh, and the first time this airs, it will be five days away. Uh, so you can look for it on Kickstarter 
we will have on the announcement article for this show, we will have a link to the Kickstarter so that you can follow it uh, and have a look. So, and Oh, yeah. We have some fun stuff. Oh, we have a Plague Doctor pin. Ooh, oh, perfect. Really, yeah, that's perfect. the timing couldn't it, be better for that. Yes, yes. It, 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 the, the picture of it on the Kickstarter page doesn't doesn't actually do it justice. It actually looks better than, than that. And uh, Alejandro Lee, uh, who is a local to Southern California artist, is uh, designed the pin. Oh, nice. Yeah. So Alejandro Lee, he is one of the artists on Boston Metaphysical, is he not? He did the coloring book last year. Oh, yes. I remember now. Yeah. He did the coloring book. Yeah, beautiful uh, line art. It, oh, yeah. He's just... I've been so lucky. Uh, my artists and colorists, everybody, the whole team that's been on is on any of the, the various projects have been, you know, fantastic, from Emily to Gwen to Alejandro and uh, our colorists on the early books, Gloria and Fariza. And, of course, I can't forget Troy Pateri, who's been our letterer since the beginning and uh, has done an awesome job. Never, never underestimate the letterer. <laughs> Get the oh. whole thing a consistent feel the whole way through. And then also, if you are interested in how to get your own Kickstarter going. Madeline has also written a book called Kickstarter for the Independent Creator, and that is available on Amazon uh, and uh, and all ebook platforms. Uh-huh. But be sure to get uh, the one with the green cover. That's the second edition. Oh, I have the first edition. Yeah. I should, I should yeah, upgrade. You want, yeah, you want the second to, edition? Yeah, I've got to. I've got to go buy the book. Shopping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just. Got yeah, it. I actually update the second edition every year, about a month or two after my latest Kickstarter, because Kickstarter and crowdfunding it's constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's always little things about fulfillment and postage and how Kickstarters change. You know, one year there was Kickstarter mm-hmm. Live. Now there's not Kickstarter Live anymore, and and so I go in and, and I do little mm-hmm. do little updates every year. And now Patreon has a fulfillment service, you know, oh, so that you don't right. yeah, so that you don't have to handle the stuff yourself or keep track of who you're supposed to send what to and why. You know, they handle. Oh, it all. I, I actually I do it myself. So yeah, it's over there. Yeah, their stuff yeah. is maybe overpriced, uh, but still, um, you know, if you if you don't have the jets to to create the content and manage your own campaign, you know, at 100% as well. Uh, it's, you know, it's an, it's an option. And there are fulfillment companies that do this. So it's something Absolutely that you take, in, take into account. Madeline Holly Rosing, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Event Horizon here on Sci-Fi Radio. Thank you. We're always glad to have you. You're one of our four basic food groups. Uh, well, I always love talking to you guys. It's so much fun, and uh, and I've missed you. I haven't seen you guys in like over a year, and it's like it's fun. Yeah, it's good to see you. It's absolutely yeah. good to see both of you. Anyway, thank you once again. It's thank been great. you. You have been listening to episode two hundred and fourteen of Sci-Fi Dot Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for March twenty seventh, twenty twenty one. Our guest this evening has been Madeline Holly Rosing, author and creator of the hit graphic novel series and webcomic Boston Metaphysical Society. Visit bostonmetaphysicalsociety.com to read the webcomic and to get more information on their newest Kickstarter for their newest graphic novel installment, Book of Demons. 
This episode will air again on March 28th, 2021 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon, that's Sunday, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Sci-Fi.Radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. We are asking you to visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and pledge $5 a month to help keep the station on the air. Give the gift of geek music to your friends by helping support the world's only full-time sci-fi fandom radio station. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2021 by the Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.